Let us pray. So, Father, we give you thanks that Jesus always shines fairer and Jesus always shines purer as a beacon to us, your people, and that he makes our hearts sing even in woeful seasons, and we give you great thanks for that. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. You may be seated. Let's try that again. Good morning, everyone. That's much better. So good to see all of you this morning. Um, Today is, as I mentioned, as I welcomed you, the second Sunday in Lent, and we're going to dive right in today. So I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles or your devices with Scripture on them to our Gospel reading from Mark chapter 8, and we will be focusing on verses 31 through 34 of Mark chapter 8 this morning. As we begin, I want to give credit where credit is due, um, both to William Lane and James Edwards for their wonderful commentaries on this text from Mark's Gospel that I'll be le- I leaned on quite heavily as I prepared my sermon. I'll be quoting them at several points, but I want to make sure I give appropriate credit. The opening verse of St. Mark's Gospel explicitly identifies Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, and as the Son of God. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 tells us this, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It doesn't get any plainer and more explicit than that. However, in Jesus' interaction with his disciples and his encounter with demons and with people in Mark's gospel, until chapter 8, the central focus of Jesus' identity is downplayed or, if you will, kept under wraps. For example, in Mark 1.34, we read, And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. In Mark chapter 3, verses 11 through 12, we read, And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. In Mark 5, we read, And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This temporary downplaying of Jesus' full and true identity is something we see especially in the first seven chapters, seven and a half chapters of St. Mark's Gospel. It is what theologians refer to as the Messianic secret. Now, we don't have time, and it's beyond our purposes today, to delve into this in great depth. The fact is, this is a subject that entire books have been written on. But in his commentary on Mark's Gospel, William Lane defines this messianic secret in this way. The messianic secret is God's intention to provide salvation through a suffering, that's the key word here, suffering Savior, who is identified with the people by his free decision to bear the burden of the judgment upon human rebellion. So let's take this down out of the theological stratosphere for a moment. Why did Jesus command demons and even his followers to not speak of his full identity in the early period of his earthly ministry, despite clear demonstrations of his divine and messianic power? Well, it was because it 
to have made this fully known prematurely would have short-circuited his purpose in coming to earth to die as the savior of the world. It was premature. As one theologian that Lane quotes in his commentary says, if Jesus had allowed his glory as God, as the son of God to shine everywhere, if he had permitted the crowds their delirious enthusiasm, if he had allowed the demons to howl their servile confession, if he permitted the apostles to divulge everywhere their sensational discovery, the passion would have been rendered impossible and the destiny of Jesus would have issued in triumph, but a triumph which would have been wholly human and which would not have accomplished the divine plan. In other words, Jesus would have been put on a human triumphalistic pedestal that would have thwarted God's purposes. However, in Mark chapter 8, everything shifts. Starting with verse 31 of Mark 8, Jesus begins to teach his disciples the full purpose of his coming to earth as the Messiah and what that would look like. It's important to note that Jesus says all of this to his disciples with the crowds nearby. Note verse 34. So the inference is that the crowds were overhearing much of what Jesus was saying to his disciples here. So let's take some time to unpack all of this. First, we need to understand Jesus' ministry purpose as it is stated here. Jesus states his purpose with explicit description, which is first prophetic in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. This is the first of three predictions of his passion, which Jesus gives us in Mark's gospel. The other two being Mark 9.31 and Mark 10.33 through 34. Jesus is not fulfilling the common conceptions or common misconceptions at the time regarding the Messiah. Instead, he radically redefines them in what is a shocking and even off-putting way. He's defying all the commonly held stereotypes. And on top of that, his definition or redefinition of his mission and purpose as the Messiah sounds scandalous. Rather than success, temporal triumph, and victory, his ministry as Messiah is marked by rejection, suffering, and death. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be killed. Jews, both then and down through history, even to this day, have no, had and have no concept of a suffering Messiah. Yet this is exactly the essence of Jesus, the eternal Son of God, in his ministry, a suffering Messiah. To quote Edward Schweitzer, another theologian, whoever understands the suffering of the Son of Man understands God. It is there, and not in heavenly splendor, that one sees the heart of God. The heart of God is revealed in a suffering Messiah, a suffering Savior. Not only does Jesus speak prophetically, but secondly, he also speaks plainly. Verse 32, and he said this plainly. 
This shocked the disciples. No parables, no coded speech. And the wording here for plainly is quite strong. It speaks of the idea of boldness or confidence. And Jesus is speaking in explicit and unambiguous terms about his coming rejection and his death. But he also promises ultimate vindication. Verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. But note, the only way to that victory of that coming in glory with his holy angels is through suffering and death. Through Christ's complete submission to the will of the Father. The Son of Man must suffer. Now none of this sits well with the disciples. And Peter being Peter, takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. And this leads Jesus to bring another shocking clarification to his ministry and purpose, which is my second point this morning. Jesus' ministry clarified. Look at verse 33 with me. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That's strong. But Peter's opposition is an opposition to God's central purpose and design in Jesus coming to earth. The words used here for Jesus' rebuke of Peter are the same, is the same word which Jesus uses in Matthew 4.10 to rebuke Satan when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, where we read in Matthew 4.10 that Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Why does Jesus confront Peter and rebuke him with such incredibly strong wording? Well, to quote James Edwards again in his commentary, Jesus' concept of Messiah is not satanic, as Peter suspects. Peter's attempt to avert him from it is. What Peter sees as unthinkable is actually inevitable. For Jesus to circumvent his suffering and death is to thwart God's design for the salvation of the world. Did you hear that? For Jesus to somehow circumvent his suffering and his death is to thwart God's design for the salvation of the world. It would have been a refusal on Jesus' part, to walk in God's will. Everything, everything, everything hinges on Jesus' complete obedience to the will of the Father. And Peter has fallen into the trap to which every single one of us is vulnerable. Peter thinks he is doing or speaking the will of God, but he is sorely confused. Peter has momentarily stepped into the role 
of playing God or pretending to know the mind of God himself while relying merely on human reason and logic. Thinking he knows what is best based purely on flawed human logic and incorrect assumptions. Now hear me. I am not saying that God has not given us reason and logic. He has. But when that logic is some way separated or divorced from the truth of God's word and listening to the voice of the spirit, it will always take us in the wrong direction because human logic apart from those things is carnal and flawed and even ungodly. Peter's assumptions flow from carnal human nature. And we can easily make similar presumptuous mistakes when we rely on human logic and reason alone. When we look at things through the eyes of the flesh rather than listening to the voice of the Spirit. When we decide whether something makes sense or doesn't make sense simply in the crevasses, if you will, of our own thoughts and our own mind rather than looking to God's truth considering things prayerfully. And all of a sudden, anything that seems bad or difficult or awkward or painful, we can easily write off as not being the will of God. And yet for Jesus, the way of the cross is the will of God. And Jesus makes this abundantly plain and clear. After bringing this rebuke and clarification, Jesus turns to his disciples and now to the crowds who are gathered around them as well. And he makes another equally shocking statement. Verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Like Jesus, his disciples were also called to selfless abandon and complete submission to the will of the Father. But hear this. If we have a wrong understanding of Messiahship like Peter did in that moment, or if we rely merely on human reason and the eyes of the flesh, we will also have a wrong and deficient understanding of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Think about that for a moment. What is your understanding? What is my understanding of what it means to truly be a disciple of Jesus? Ponder that. He calls us to take up our cross, your cross, and my cross. And to come back to what I said a little while ago, for, the, for Jesus, the way of the cross is the will of God. So therefore, if for Jesus, the way of the cross is the will of God, therefore, for the disciple of Jesus, the way of the cross is the will of God. And I do not say that lightly. It's a gravely serious thing. And for the disciple of Jesus, bearing one's cross is not putting up with some sort of 
minor inconvenience or, or hardship. So often we'll hear people almost tritely or actually very much tritely referring to the idea of taking up a cross. Well, that's just my cross to bear in life. And they may be talking about something very simple or, you know, a mild inconvenience in life that perhaps is ongoing. Nobody in the first century would have thought of taking up the cross in that way. And neither can we if we are living as disciples of Jesus. The way of the cross is the way of complete and utter death to self and surrender to God. For the Christians in Rome who first read Mark's gospel, all of this that they hear taking up the cross was a God-breathed reminder to them that their suffering, and it was great if you look at church history under Nero, and other, under other emperors as well, was not because God had abandoned them, because, but because they were called to the same way and the same walk as their Savior as his disciples. J.W. Tucker was a missionary to the Congo in the late 1950s and early 1960s. With his hands tied behind his back, he was beaten almost to death, and then with 60 other Christians, both Protestant and Catholic, he was thrown into the crocodile-infested Bomaconde River. This wasn't ISIS or Al-Qaeda who claimed responsibility. The attack took place on November 24, 1964, at the hands of Congolese rebels. And if any of you know anything about history in Africa at that time, the Congo was embroiled in a huge civil war coming out of um, Belgian colonialism, and many Christians and many missionaries were killed. Tucker left behind a wife and several young children. It was the eternal perspective that inspired Tucker to risk his earthly life for the gospel, however. He didn't fear death because he had already died to self. It wasn't an uncalculated risk that led Tucker into the Congo during a civil war. He counted the cost with his missionary friend, Morris Plotz. And Plotz tried to convince his friend not to go, saying, if you go in, you won't come out. To which Tucker responded, God didn't tell me I had to come out. He only told me I had to go in. Another example of that kind of a cross-centered life are the Trappist monks who lived on Mount Atlas in Algeria back in the 1990s. And some of you may be familiar with the story. The Trappists are a Catholic religious order of monks. Um, we have a Trappist monastery out in Berryville, not too far from us here. The monks were from France, living in Algeria. And it was a time of civil unrest, but they lived a quiet life, um, focused on prayer and also working with the rural poor in their community near the small village where they, their monastery was located. Um, and they ran a health clinic and also provided physical supplies to the community like clothing and shoes. There are stories depicted in a film that was made about 15 years ago called Of Gods and Men. It's a French movie that actually won awards at the Cannes Film Festival um, with English subtitles. 
the monks wrestled because there was a Muslim insurgency that was incredibly violent, very much in the vein, it wasn't ISIS, but in the vein of ISIS that arose in Algeria at that time. And they were moving in the direction of that, that region in which their monastery and their village was located. And they wrestled prayerfully with what they should do. And one time they talked with the people in the village who were Muslims and one monk said that they were all like birds on the branch of a tree, uncertain whether or not to fly away or stay. And to this, one of the women from the village corrected him, saying, you are the tree, we are the birds. If you leave, we will lose our footing. Ultimately, the monks made the brave decision to stay. And sometime later, this Muslim insurgency did indeed arrive in the area. Um, they had made several choices. One, that they were going to stay. Two, that they were going to share the gospel. And three, that they were not going to resist in any violent way. And indeed, they all were martyred. They were beheaded in a very gruesome way, every single one of them. But what profoundly impacted me are I've read some of the journals from some of the monks or the things they wrote during this time, knowing that they would probably be taken hostage, knowing that they would probably die. And one of them wrote this. I should like when the time comes to have a moment of spiritual clarity, which will allow me to beg forgiveness of God and my fellow human beings. And at the same time to forgive with all my heart, the one who will strike me down. And then continuing and also you, my last friend, who will not have known what you were doing. Yes, I want this thank you and this adieu to be for you too, because in God's face, I see yours. For Christians under Nero, for J.W. Tucker, for the Trappist monks on Mount Atlas in Algeria, and for countless believers down through the centuries. It was an identification with their Lord and faithfulness to the way of Jesus, which is the way of the cross. Death to self. The cross. And I don't say this lightly and I'm preaching to myself as much as I am or more so than to any one of you. But the cross, taking up the cross, calls you and me to complete surrender. It is dying to ourselves and the things of this world daily. The cross-centered or cruciform life is one of full and daily submission to and identifying with our Lord in full surrender to his will, whatever that may hold for us. And I close with this quote from Henri Nouwen, wonderful Catholic writer who, in his book that I've recommended to you before, which I'm rereading this Lent, called The Selfless Way of Christ, says this, Regardless of the particular shape we give to our lives, Jesus' call to discipleship is primal, all-encompassing, all-inclusive, demanding a total commitment. When it cannot be a little bit for Christ, 
give him some attention or make him one of many concerns? Is it possible to follow Christ while fulfilling the demands of the world? To listen to Christ while paying equal attention to others? To carry Christ's cross while carrying many other burdens as well? Jesus certainly appears to draw a very sharp distinction. No one can be the slave of two masters, he says. He insisted, and he did not hesitate to confront us with the uncompromising demands of his call. It is a narrow gate and a hard road that leads to life. Anyone who prefers father or mother to me is not worthy of me. These challenging words are not meant only for a few of Jesus' followers who have a so-called special vocation. Rather, they are for all who consider themselves Christians. They indicate the radical nature of the call. There is no easy way to follow Christ. As he himself says, whoever is not for me is against me. Let us pray. So, Father, we are so grateful for the obedience of Jesus, your eternal Son, our Savior, who suffered and died in humiliation, who obeyed you even to death on a cross for our salvation. And Lord, I'm well aware that this is a hard word today. But it is your word. And you give us, through Christ, your grace and your power to walk in obedience. In a way that is freeing, in a way that is liberating, you lead us ever more fully into death to self and full submission to you as we seek to serve and walk with you by your grace as your disciples. And Father, thank you that the way of the cross is the road to victory, it is the road to life despite suffering, it is the road of grace despite hardship. Give us your grace to walk more fully day by day as disciples of Jesus and to die to self. We ask this in his name and for your glory. Amen.